Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What's led to Brexit? It's what led to Trump. Is this idea that you can go back to this, you know, this romanticised view of the world? Google, Facebook, and these big tech platforms are fundamentally antithetical to democracy because they hold so much data, and because individuals are losing control of this data as a consequence, that they're basically eroding democracy from within. People often say, oh, all our data's out there, we've got nothing, and there's this pervasive sense of helplessness. I want a lightsaber. G'day, welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Today, we are very fortunate to have in the studio Dr. Leslie Seebeck to get to the bottom of all things cyber, data, democracy and national security. Leslie is the founding CEO of the Cyber Institute and before that, she was the Chief Investment Officer at the Australian Digital Transformation Agency and Chief Information Officer at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Leslie, and welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Catherine. So it seems these days it's hard to open a newspaper or scroll through a news feed without hearing more bad news on the cybersecurity front, whether it's hacks into the parliament in Australia just before an election or news of another data breach. We're always hearing bad news stories about cybersecurity. Indeed. I think what it shows is that uh, the extent to which our society has become digital, because digital and cyber are synonymous, uh, cyber inherently is about how people use those technologies. Uh, so it's got upsides so on, the, on the positive side. It's also got significant downsides. And we tend to, naturally, as, as people, we tend to focus on the bad, side, bad stories. Uh, and we therefore we neglect all the good things that can go on with you know, in our digital society and economy, and that provides us a particular mindset that we really need to think about hard to work out how what sort of society we want to live in. And when it comes to having those conversations and thoughts about what society we want to live in in the digital age, how mature do you think the debate is that we're having in Australia and indeed around the world about how we shape the cyberspace and the digital age that we want to live in? So this is where I think uh, the Cyber Institute itself can make a significant difference because a lot of the discussion defaults to the security side of the equation and it defaults to the technology. Cyber is inherently about people. It's about how people use technology, build the technology, shape the technology. Uh, and so we need to take a step back, think hard about the, the people aspects, the human part of the equation, and educate people accordingly. Now, by that, I don't mean that we should all go and code. Uh, we need to sit back and because it's about the use of this of these technologies. 
uh, it's about thinking about particularly the values and so on. And that's a that's a quite a different discussion. Values tend to be made manifest manifest in particular technologies. Uh, the technology itself tends to be very neutral, but because build, people build and shape them, that's when they become political instruments, if you like. And this is a really interesting point, I guess, for foreign policy and national security wonks, because there's a lot of debate at the moment about whether or not the internet and you know emerging frontier tech like artificial intelligence actually inherently is a good thing for democracy or maybe inherently is a good thing for authoritarian regimes. And I think it's quite funny because if you had have asked a kind of a, a technologist or a foreign policy wonk in the 1990s, um, do you think information technology is good for democracy? They probably would have said 100%, you know, it's pushing the next wave of democratisation. But today, I mean, you know, Foreign Affairs magazine just ran a survey of global experts who overwhelmingly concluded that new tech uh, favours tyranny. Is, is this missing something in the debate about the human factor you're talking about? Certainly in the yeah, – well, yes, it is. Certainly when you go back to the 1970s and 80s, you know, had that whole wellspring of, you know, and and uh, aspiration coming out of particularly places like Silicon Valley, but you saw it elsewhere in the uh, in the States as well as places such as um, in the UK and, and Europe as well about how technology could make us free. And there was um, this real sense that it would actually help us become the people we could be. It actually was an empowering instrument. People could go on the internet and be something different and we could see these entire industries being set up by individuals and so on. What we've forgotten is that the internet is is something very different. It's a man-made artifact, and we're still approaching the world as though it was sort of you know was the 1940s or 50s in the way we think about both political institutions, how we uh, act in the world, our values, our governance structures, our resourcing mechanisms. The internet's a giant tracking machine. It favours aggregation. It favours platforms. It favours accumulation, and this is where accumulation of data is particularly significant, and data tends to attract other data. So the people who end up controlling that data, who control the platforms, who control the means of uh, of that accumulation, are the ones who are actually also controlling, you know, uh, accumulating power and political power. And that does tend to favour governments, it tends to favour large corporations, and it disfavours significant individuals. So there's the, this, I guess, surfaces the surveillance capitalism argument. And I know that Shoshana Zuboff's just put out a new book, um, kind of crystallising seven years of her thoughts about surveillance capitalism. And her argument is pretty much that Google, Facebook and these big tech platforms are fundamentally antithetical to democracy because they hold so much data and because individuals are losing control of this data as a consequence, that they're basically eroding democracy from within, which to a national security wonk sounds kind of alarming. Mm. Is, is that an argument that you buy into or, or are there kernels of truth in it? Certainly kernels of truth. I haven't read the book as yet. It's on, on my very long and extended reading list. Uh, <laughs> I think I've downloaded it. I'm not sure. I've, I've read a summary <laughs> on Goodreads and I think that's all you need to do these days, right? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> I'm a millennial. We, we look for the easy route. <laughs> yeah, the 15-second grab. Uh, 
I think what's important here too, because people often say, oh, all our data's out there, we've got nothing. And there's this pervasive sense of helplessness, which is also not good for democracy, mm. because part of democracy is a sense that you have a say, you do exert some influence, you do part, you know, partake in the community and do, do the heavy lifting. Uh, and so, yes, in terms of you know, democracy and those systems, suddenly we've gone 180 degrees around from, you know, the internet will actually empower us to the internet's disempowering us. The second thing that I'm coming to conclude, and you're getting here some sort of, you know, top of the, you know, sort of early thinking in, uh, that I'm doing at the moment, is that it's not merely data that's important, personal data, it's your identity. Mm. And we haven't really had that discussion about identity and what it means to be a digital citizen in a giant, you know, as I said, a giant tracking machine, uh, machine in this giant uh, accumulation of data or data sets that's are pervasive and around the world. And so I think one thing that we need to do is, you know, how we actually you know, deal with this new world we're in is step back and say, right, number one, as a, as a core principle, you get to do identify your identity. No one else does. You do. Bear in mind that people are messy. Thank God. People are messy. They're changeable. They will move and evolve over time. Yes, there's some constants, but a lot of people will try to, you know, particularly, you know, as we move through society and we move through our lives, we have, we will have different jobs, for example, in job roles, and we learn as we go. And so you will have multiple identities. There will be shades of, of one person, but there will be multiple identities. Again, you should have control of that and about what identity you're presenting at any individual point in time. And this really came to me when I was reading a BBC News article recently about a young chap, uh, I can't recall uh, his name, who was a Norwegian who changed disease. When he died, his parents discovered that he had all these friends around the world, particularly in Europe, because he used to play World of Warcraft. And all these people who played with him had no idea about his physical condition. And it was very moving to realize he'd established this, this, his own personal identity. You actually had a couple of them online and really interacted and had a deep and meaningful relationships as a result. And that's the sort of thing world we're in. That's the sort of things we need to think about. I guess that takes us back to the, that ye olde New Yorker cartoon that says, you know, on the internet, <laughs> no one, one knows, knows you're, you're a dog. A dog. But the way that the internet's evolved now, everyone knows not only that you're a dog, but that you like watching romantic comedies on Netflix, what you last read, yes. kind of your political preference, and yes. all of these thousands of data points about yes. you. Have we kind of opened Pandora's box to a point where we can't go back to the those those days? Um, I don't. Th well, we can never go back. Number one, I mean, the world is evolving and changing. You can never go back. And this is part of the problem, how people are trying to cope with this new world. It's what's led to Brexit. It's what led to Trump is this idea that you can go back to this, you know, this romanticized view of the world that you probably hated when you're growing up or, you know, can see all the downsides, but it looks nice and familiar. So number one, you can never go back. Number two, you can go forward and you will, you should have control of your point in life every time from here on in. And what does that control look like? Because, again, I referenced before that I'm a millennial, so I'm kind of borderline addicted to my phone. I know that there are security and privacy concerns with all the data I share to Netflix, my Google Home, because it's just easy mm. and convenient yeah. to give that up to someone. And even if I had more explicit control, I might still just give it away. Yes. How can you um, – I mean, does it matter if people still make a choice to give it away – or is the idea that if we had the option of control that we might 
be more psychologically primed to be a bit more careful yes. with our data. So there's a couple of thoughts there. And again, this is early days, and I'm sure others have thought more deeply about this than I have. Uh, first, it is a conscious choice on your behalf, or should be. It should not be just taken, and there should be, you know, sort of, again, this is where GDPR and those sort of things are moving towards. So it should not merely just be taken. Second, your data should not be viewed as a free good. Um, and you know, one way that we have, one mechanism we had that making sure that free goods are not exploited is by putting a cost on it. So you might enter into a bargain with, you know, for, for example, Facebook, that every time they use your data, you get a, some form of remuneration. And that becomes something that, because you become conscious then about what this means. The other reason I suggest that too is because uh, there will be people will make trade-offs because they will be in extreme circumstances, and we need to find ways, particularly you know, protect particularly the vulnerable in that mm. regard. We might need also to say, okay, there are rules around how you treat children in this world too, because they are vulnerable individuals. They're not in position to make those decisions. So how do we protect them? So there's a number of things we can start thinking about in that regard. You know, I think the idea of monetizing or putting a price on data is a really compelling one. But I also have seen a lot of counter arguments. So Indeed. Hillary Clinton kind of made the, the statement a, a few months ago that you know, data is more valuable than gold. She got absolutely roasted on, on a lot of tech forums online who were kind of saying, no, your data on an individual level until it's aggregated yes. is actually not worth much at all. I think it's worth, you know, between three cents and a dollar yeah. um, on that individual level. So how when... But it meets, oh, yeah, it's worth more to you individually than it might be to a company. It's only worth when it gets to individual levels. So one of the problems we have in this, as a society is that we don't deal with complexity terribly well. Uh, so this is a case where the outcomes is an emergent property of the individuals all getting together. That's why accumulation and agglomeration is so important. It's so kind it's of critical. like a collective action it's problem a, yeah, in, a, in a sense. Yeah. Then. And so let's look at mechanisms where why we start thinking in terms of collective action. So it might be a case where, I don't know, I'm thinking off the top of my head at the moment, you identify with a group of people and you actually start exerting influence that way. You know, political parties or you know, like-minded hobbyists or something. Uh, one of the things that, for example, I recall reading a story about how eBay got started up was not because they were selling to the everyday individual. They started realizing there were groups of hobbyists and you could make, you know, sort of these were the things that were really using that particular platform because how else do you connect with other people who are interested in, you know, oh, I don't know, sort of, you know, 47-sided dice, for example, you know, for particular games and particularly, you know, those are the sort of things. And so it was that communication and um, those identification of, of individuals that, that made it useful. So there's a p potentially a prospect that you could sort of turn this around. Who else is going to be interested in these sort of things and find those individuals? Another point too, I guess, when we talk about data protection, um, we often think about it in terms of privacy and civil liberties, human rights, which of course are very important kind of yeah. viewpoints to have. But there are also broader questions that that I'm interested as a kind of a more of a national security mm. leaning person about how we need to protect data um, for national security purposes. So, for instance, you know, we saw with Russia's um, intervention, ongoing intervention in the United States, mm. that they use data free, that's freely available mm. on social media sites to better target foreign disinformation campaigns. Mm. Or even we mentioned the, the hack of, of parliament and political parties in Australia um, in, in February of this mm. year. And, you know, we don't really know necessarily what 
was behind that or the purposes. But, you know, that type of data that political parties hold about voters um, is a really valuable mm. intelligence source and also mm. potentially a source for, for disinformation. Mm. So when we're framing these issues, um, you know, to what extent is it about privacy and the individual versus broader concerns as well about national security? Okay, so a couple of thoughts. Firstly, if you're exerting power and influence, you've, you're you're actually operating at two levels. One is the the you're trying to find influential people, and you're trying to exert some form of leverage over them. So that's one thing to protect. That tends to be where a lot of current thoughts, or up until about 2016, or, you know, or so focused on the national security space. How do we protect the data of those you know, few vulnerable people at the top of society in key decision-making forums? Mm. And then we saw 2016, let's actually all, you know, sort of target groups and how do we influence those groups? And that's a different sort of, you know, again, this is not new. I mean, you go back, we talk about the Russians, the Soviet disinformation campaigns, propaganda. It's, but it's the ye olde attacks, but it's just scaled attacks. up, I suppose. And yeah, but scaled up, it's happening you know, sort of uh, faster. It's more, you know, because... The internet goes everywhere. It's easier to do in some respects, etc. So it's a it's it's a step up. But there's in the national security domain, we sort of have difficulty sort of you know flicking between the two, or perhaps we don't. We become more sophisticated, but we have difficulty flicking between the two. So that's one thought. The second thought is that. Um, the parliament, you know, all these things, you know, if a nation state is doing it, they will expect, particularly if they're in the open, to be, you know, discovered. They have to work on the basis that the other side is, is probably as sophisticated as they are. Um, you know, it's a reasonable assumption, and they will be discovered. You know, they might be, you might be after a number of years, but something will happen. And that means that you're also not doing it merely to um, exert control over the system and gain access over a particular technological system uh, and the data therein, but you're also sending a message. So let's also start looking at these sort of things about the message there's being, you know, the sending. And certainly in the case of the Russian hacks, the DNC, etc., Democratic National Convention, that... Uh hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, uh, you know, there was a, you know, a message to be sent there. Yes, we are influencing it. And you'll start seeing nation states working on the basis that this is part of all our tools of state and influence in the world. Which I think comes back to an interesting point, because before we were talking about kind of the corrosive effects of of not looking after data in the digital yeah. world from, from within on yes. democracy. And it seems that authoritarian regimes are you know, taking advantage of that to work at destabilizing democracies from without. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to go back to the idea that you were mentioning before about this idea of how we be a digital citizen in a democracy kind of in the 21st century. Because it seems to me, you know, we can talk about what the Russians are doing, what the Chinese are doing, but that's something that's out of our control and we only can defend yes. or, or be yes. more resilient as a, as a response. Yes. In terms of the threats from within, what do we need to do to start even the conversation about protecting data, about being 
you know, what it means to be a citizen in a democracy in the 21st century. Yeah. So my, my, my first rule of thumb is not do what they're doing because we've got to provide the counter argument. We don't want to look more like them. And the natural inclination of any government will be to, you know, sort of try and suppress the threat, try and exert control, uh, to try and make sure that, you know, they that risk is minimised as much as the government can pretend it can manage some of that risk, uh, to try and get all the information so that, you know, and, you know, all decisions belong to us sort of thing. The great strength of democracies is that we don't do that. Or we, you know, again, there is that trade-off between liberty and security. We do yield some freedoms in return for security. But we need to be very careful about that decision where that balance lies. And I think at the moment, I'm not seeing enough about how can we actually empower the individual? How can we actually talk about the values? And the point you've made too, how can we actually go back and do the heavy lifting and retain that muscle memory of what is great about democracies? One of the problems about the uh, what we're seeing about cyber and constant news about hacks and vulnerabilities and the scare factor around security and safety is that particularly when we don't feel that there's anything we can do or that the institutions aren't responding well enough is that we erode trust. We erode trust in the systems. We erode trust in the society. We erode trust in all the institutions that we rely on. And, and I guess in a sense create a sense of decision paralysis. Yes. However, the flip side is, you know, sometimes in order for there to be great policy change, you need a crisis. Oh, yes, I know. To paraphrase <laughs> very poorly Winston Churchill, which, yeah. you yes. know, for whatever you think, mm. um, it's difficult to, to slowly change policy, particularly, yeah. I guess, with the internet and, and big tech companies when it's not necessarily that something within yeah. Australia, it might require global consensus. Yes. I mean, we die the death of a thousand cuts in incrementalism. I have a suspicion that in a few years' time, we'll look at, back at this these last few, you know, 18 months, two years, and say there was a step change. How did we miss it? <laughs> and I say that because, again, just the tempo, but the sophistication of attacks, the use of these attacks by nation states, the um, ubiquity and the use by non-state actors – the degree to which smaller players can pick up and run with these things, the growth of the dark web. And now we're going headlong into you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, greater automation, um, and 5G. I'm feeling very overwhelmed. Yeah. Where do we start? And I guess this is, this is the problem, right? Because it is so overwhelming that it can yeah. invoke a sense of helplessness and paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. What's, you know, if there was one thing that you could change, even if it's kind of a... a a uh, blue sky thinking thing. What what would it be? And what within Australia? What can we What can we do? If it's a blue sky thing, I would. My temptation to say, I want a lightsaber, <laughs> which would solve all problems. <laughs> it would solve all problems exactly. <laughs> I want my silver bullets for the lightsaber. Every now and then, I say I became a physicist so I could work out how to get extra hours in a day, and I failed dismally in that as well. <laughs> I don't think those counts. I don't think that's what you're after. Um, I would ask, um, there's a number of things. Firstly, privilege everything you can to protect people because they need to regain trust in the system. Put the human at the absolute center. I don't mean just in terms of, oh, yes, we do human or user-centered design. I mean, put the human at the absolute center of everything you do. Government should be a steward, not the controller. It is a response. And that's the pact we've made. That's a social contract we made. There's an interesting tension there, though, because governments now have access to more data than ever before. And there's a great temptation to feel as a government that 
you know, that has a commitment to data-centred yeah. policy, evidence-based policy, yeah. that they want to use data on citizens. They yeah. want citizens to be as legible to them as possible so yes. they can make better policy, deliver services better. Yes. Is there some type of tipping point yes. uh, or as risk as, that we're as missing? As soon as you start hearing a conversation that goes back to, oh, it's efficiency, it's efficiency. Efficient humans are templated, they're standardised, they are not humans, they're not messy, they're not able to make things, you know, do things. One of the problems about data-centred design decisions, it tends to be, not always, unless you're quite smart and sophisticated about it, it tends to be backwards looking. So, you know, in the game, particularly as we move to automation and machine learning, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, there's already been cases whereby, you know, some of the things that Google have been using, for example, have accepted bias. They've accepted, mm. you know, why does, why does, you know, Amazon start picking more men than women? Because they've used data and the data in the past reflected that they tended to do human bias was they tended to pick more men than women. Which I think brings it exactly back to your point that this is about people and yes. it's still people who design algorithms. Yes. It's still people who are uh, the inputs yes. and their behaviour that are the inputs yep. into these algorithms. And I kind of share your fear that if we become an algorithm, if we become a society by algorithm, we're just encoding decisions that have worked into the past yeah. onto the future. And also as well too, I mean, this is the world we you know uh, live in and has been able to be exploited by you know the um, you know Internet Research Agency in Russia because the algorithms themselves. So it's also it's not merely the data, mm. it's the algorithms. So one of the questions I'm interested in answering at some point is how do we, what's the what is the mathematics underlying the algorithms that do you know do this at the moment? They're positive feedback loops. And you probably need something that actually evens out behavior rather than reinforcing behavior, for example. So there's, you know, we're not having any of those discussions. We just say, hey, magic bullet will automate this. We'll use machine learning. We'll use an AI. <laughs> and uh, to which I go, I sort of, you know, find a brick wall and start banging my head against it. I've heard you talk before. I think you said, beware of technology glitter. Yes. Um, oh, yes. And this seems to be a good example. Yeah. You know, you, you can't go a day without hearing about the promise of the blockchain or yes. AI or cryptocurrency yes. and yeah, you know, so that's yeah, it's a problem that someone's yeah. picked up a magazine, read something, and say, "Well, this is solving all our problems." What it does is, um, you know, again, people are forgetting to do the hard thinking. It's easier than dealing with people too. People are messy. Well, that's part of the joy of dealing with people as well. You know, we're going to get a technology solution, which brings us back full circle to why are we doing cyber incorrectly as far as I'm concerned, because we end up saying, you know, there's a cyber problem. Quick, let's get the, you know, the technologist onto mm. this. That means that it becomes divorced from civil society. It means that the people are taken out of the equation. I'm not saying, again, there's some very good people in the technology field who know this. And you can read anything, you know, all the um, material from a Cisco or Palo Alto or any of those companies, and they will be saying people, you know, it's the people that are, that are the problem or, the, you know, the problem and the solution. People are central to this. You know, 75, two-thirds to three-quarters to my rule of 90% of a technology, you know, a cyber issue is about the people. And I think it, that's a good point because a lot of discussions about technology can exclude people. And I think mm -hmm. it's funny, you know, I wouldn't be excluded from having an opinion on air power just because I can't pilot an aircraft. But sometimes <laughs> yeah. discussions yes. about cyber technology, yes. um, if you can't code or yeah. if you're not an expert coder, yeah. um, sometimes you feel like you shouldn't have an opinion. Would you say that, you know, 
we need to be more inclusive in in that conversation? I mean, it's just a natural reaction of everyone to try and find other people that they know they can talk to in the same language. So yes, they will tend to accumulate and you know together, and they'll sort of talk in their own terms. And you know, every field does this. If you can read some of the medical literature about customer patient uh, doctor patient relations, you'll get the, find the same arguments. And so, you know, it's a case of how do we break those down? How do we build the narratives around that they actually take it out and actually humanize it and then take those learnings, horrible term, take those lessons uh, and then sort of back to the technology side of the house and teach people how to do this from the get go. So this is what Eleanor Huntington is doing with, you know, again, engineering. It's, 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 it's about the social engineering. It's about the people side of things as well, because you've got to build buildings and, you know, build systems for people. Christopher Alexander is a famous architect, came up with a pattern language. It's all about making um, houses, architecture and so on there for the user. It's, so you find this in every field. The danger is because we look for the quick fix and the silver bullet um, and we can just throw capex, you know, capital expenditure on it rather than the messy opex, which everyone else has, you know, sort of gets harder and harder. Well, we'll just build another system as opposed to actually we really need to think about what are we trying to do? Have we got the right people in place? What's the culture of our organisation? But those questions are so much harder than thinking about the technology glitter. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Whereas we can just sort of, you know, hey, let's just put this in and it will solve the problem. Well, no, it never does. So while humans are fundamental, technology still matters, of course. And the last thing I wanted to, to kind of raise with you is what the the talent capability and technology industry looks like in Australia because it occurs to me that often in Australia we kind of wait for a country somewhere else to design or to build things and and then we buy them mm-hmm. and particularly again to bring it back to this kind of national security theme and also the protection of democracy mm-hmm. we will need to build systems that work for us mm-hmm. but do we have the in-house research and development and capability and talent pipeline to do that. Mm. Yeah, so it's, um, I think on the policy, it was yeah, policy forum thing I wrote last year, my argument is if you want to see how serious a nation is about its national security, one really, really good and in- strong indicator is its R&D budget. And uh, the reason I say that is because they, this R&D builds a future. Uh, so you look at this, you know, how much they're putting into R&D. And it's not just, you know, R&D is, if you just say, oh, we're just interested, or the only R&D we're interested in is something that builds a space plane. You're going to miss on all those other parts of the ecosystem that make it work. And I guess you're guessing at what the future looks like. And you're like. guessing and what We all know that like. prediction exactly. is... You so know, yeah, not and very, that's part, not very good. <laughs> yeah, and that's part of the frustration in Australia. The sense that we and we're very good at the basic research uh, when it gets done, and then it goes overseas because we don't have all the other parts of the ecosystem around it. So I think that's number one, and it's it's not unlike the other thing I say about strategy. If you want to see what a, a organisation's or country's strategy is, you look at where it spends money because money is where it hits. You know, the rubber hits the road. This is a trend, though. It's not just Australia that's underinvesting yeah. in, yeah. in science and technology. Yes. This is a U- something in the US, something yes. in Europe. Yes. At the same time as potential uh, yes. authoritarian competitors like China, yes. even potentially Russia, are amping up in certain key technologies. Yes. yes. This is this is obviously a global trend, and. What do we do to to reverse it? Is it is it something? Are you seeing the the the, the winds of change starting? The one thing we don't do is say stop and clamp down and not fund things. 
So there is even more reason to put more money into it now because it's not, you know, these countries will go ahead and, you know, do what they want to do. Again, comes back to values and what makes democracy great. Free, open inquiry, the scientific method, all those things where you are free to question things is fundamental to this R&D. So the challenge we have is that it's not too late for us, but unless we get you know, a go on, then you know, we're going to be you know, risk being overwhelmed. So the other thing we need to do is actually start you know, training more people in these disciplines as well and you know, giving them a, a perspective because it's not you – know, the people will respond to incentives about the future, uh, particularly at this time of life when they're coming into universities. And they think what is good, et cetera. So we need the role models. We need the incentives. We need tech transfers from other countries as well because you can't you – know, we have to start bootstrapping some of these things up. Uh, so there's a range of things that can be done, but it takes a political will and prioritization. This is a fundamental job of the political process to prioritize accordingly and not just throw your hands up and say it's all too hard. And by the way, don't talk to these people and you know, sort of you know, and clamp down. That is a sort of knee-jerk you know, control reaction as opposed to we value what we are, we're going to build out and you know, we, we actually believe in ourselves and what we stand for. Well, I think that's a really, in, despite the packaging, I actually think that's a really optimistic note to end on <laughs> because it's not too late. There is no. there is a lot of kind of, there's, there's rainbows on the horizon and it's just the navigation yeah. and it's to a get history, there. Again, it's a history of democratic or, you know, the Western societies is that we sort of wait to be pushed, as again, you quote Churchill, but we tend to wait to be pushed to that point and then we sort of say, actually, this means something, we have to stand up for something. And as I said, I think in, you know, in about four or five years' time, we'll look back and say, what were we doing? How do we miss it? So the time's now. Well, that's that's a, quite an uplifting message to end on. And I think also to kind of summarise some of the things that we've touched on, mm. in a sense, defending democracy in the digital age is ironically about going back to first principles. Mm. It's about recognising why democracy was a good choice in the first place. Yep and maybe adapting some of the systems and assumptions around the edges to make sure that in the 21st century we have 21st century ideas and social compacts to underpin democracy, mm. not just 20th or 19th century ideas. Yes. And there's so much exciting work yeah. to be done there. Oh, it's, it's just, you know, it is, it is a target-rich environment for opportunity. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and I'm thankful that we've got, uh, got you and Eleanor Huntington, who you mentioned before, who's the Dean of the Computer Science uh, Department here at the ANU and many other smart and wonderful people um, thinking about these issues. So thank you so much uh, for you. your time today on the National Security Podcast, yeah, Leslie. Great. Thanks a lot, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Leslie Seebeck, for that fascinating conversation that we've just had today. I think for me, the key takeout of the conversation is the responsibility that we have as citizens to shape the future digital democracy that we want to live in. And the, the, the points that Leslie made around the human face of technology just reinforced to me that, you know, it's it's up to us to put our voices forward in our democracy to shape the, the data policies and the cybersecurity policies that we want to live in. But that's what I thought. I'd love to know what you all listening think as well. And you can tell us that by reaching out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, or even emailing us at podcast at policyforum.net. 
Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of the National Security Podcast, and we're really looking forward to having your company with us then as well. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.